when I teach Beowulf to my students, I say, we're reading this right now on a, on a printout, which I've handed to you, or a projection on the screen. Mm -hmm. Imagine hearing this, encountering this text as it was originally portrayed, an oral narrative in a mead hall. Yeah. It's dark, it's smoky. You are listening to And If Love Remains, a unique show spotlighting people, ideas, science, culture, and art. Your host, Mike Lovett. Mike Lovett. Yes, Rachel, you are listening to that great podcast in the sky. And if love remains, I am your good and gracious host, Mike Levitt. And I am here in studio, the good friend of the program. You heard, you've heard him once, you've heard him again. Well, you're going to hear him again. This is uh, Dr. James Russell. Uh, James is a, is a book historian. And he's focused on print culture and modern periods and the history of reading. He holds a doctorate in medieval and renaissance studies with a concentration in the history of the book from Durham University in the United Kingdom and is an instructor at Rio Salado College in Phoenix. He has also worked in the rare book trade. James is interested in the, uh, in the ways that early readers made use of the medium of print as evidenced by their handwritten annotations or, uh, or in the margins. These notes allow us to, to look over the reader's shoulder and see how they interpreted um, what they read. His doctrinal project looked at the late 15th century Venetian dream narrative and at a, excuse me, a late, not the, I, there's probably other narratives, I'm sure, but this is one of them, um, late 15th century Venetian dream narrative and examined how early modern audiences interpreted the text as an allegory of alchemy. He is currently working towards a certification as a rare book appraiser. Very excited to have him. Um, James, thanks Great for coming. Great to be here, Mike. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. Oh, you bet. You bet. Um, quick question before we get into books. Um, and, and keep it broad because I, I want to have you on. I want, I want this to be a little teaser for, to have you on again. Sure. Um, but t talk to, uh, like, what have you learned as you've, as you've read kind of these early modern Renaissance writers. Um, what's one thing that, that you've learned that, that would, would be maybe odd or different in how they thought. And maybe what's the one thing that's, that's similar to how we think that, that we could completely relate to. One of the major conceptual differences in the early modern mind is that science and the humanities are not separate. They're seen as an integrated whole of knowledge. I mean, in fact, the word for science in the early modern period is natural philosophy. And today we think of the sciences or STEM as a totally separate field. Sometimes it's framed as a superior field because it can has more immediate lucrative implications right. than the humanities. And an uh, English scholar named C.P. Snow once talked about that universities are divided up into the two worlds, the worlds of the humanities, the worlds of STEM. And in the early modern mind, and by early modern, I mean from 1400 to going into the late uh, 1700s, people see the world in a much more holistic, much more integrated uh, manner in the sense that you would have someone like Isaac Newton dedicating hours of his time to alchemy right, and not see that as a contradiction from his pursuits in physics. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, I, that is interesting because you would never... Well, first of all, the, the fact that the scientists specifically, but every um, form of occupation is so um, 
specialized. It's very difficult to have, be su- su- successful in your field w- as a generalist. Like that's a very difficult thing to do. So to to think of somebody as brilliant as Isaac Newton is to, you know, be working in alchemy. You know, I know he wrote quite a bit on God. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and all these types of things like. And that was just that was that was the same work in his mind as the science that he was doing. That's certainly the case. I mean, there was a there's this ideal in the Renaissance of being a homo universale, a universal man. And our modern education system, with its hyper specialization, has drifted away from that. But we see in the, the kind of minds that humanistic, classically based education can cultivate, and that's one of the most applicable things I think we can take away from Renaissance thought is that the world is not as segmented as, as bifurcated as it initially looks or the way as we currently frame it. Interesting. Yeah, that's okay. There's your teaser guys. We're going to, we're going to come back. We're going to do that again. I, that's awesome. Um, okay. I want to talk to you today though, about rare books, book collecting, um, how to get into it, why someone might want to consider it, you know, some, some, some of these things, what to look for. Let's first of all, tell, tell me about your history in book collecting. What got you interested and, and you know, what kind of rose that passion in you? I think I got into books starting because for the fact that my parents read to me. Okay. And that's something I, I, when passing on to my daughters is making books a part of our family culture. Um, they talk about that children need to have book and print awareness before they even learn to read. They learn about what the book object is and how it's positioned and how you read a book and that to children should be raised in a print-rich environment. So, and Can I, I just add, I think yeah. that's, that's even more important today. Like as we grow in this um, economy of ours, this, this uh, screen-centric economy mm-hmm. or, you know, civilization where where – you could literally, um, and we talked about this when with Joey last time. You know, you have the entire library of of humanity on your phone, and um, and so we tend, you somebody could legitimately go through their life and not read a quote book. Yes, know? but I think it's important to know how to do it because a book in a fits physical form, and this is not to discount the value of electronic texts, is that. A physical book is an experience for almost all the senses. It's tactile. It has weight to it. It has texture to it. And part of the joy of working with books as artifacts is to sort of reground and refocus on the material aspects. One of the the movements in, in academia today is focusing on material culture. And you want to not be materialistic, but to think about that the concrete form that a text takes impacts our experience of it. I mean, think of the Gospels. The Gospels were originally written on scrolls Mm -hmm. rather than uh, in a codex or a a folded book. So we tend to, we look at the scriptures today, we tend to approach them at looking for individual verses. But in a scroll, the experience is more of a continuous flow of text um, in which it wasn't easy to jump backwards and forwards. So when we look at repetition in an ancient text, part of the repetition is not only stylistic, but is part of the concrete limitations of the medium Yeah, that you simply can't flip back and forth easily on a scroll. And because of that, the embo- way books become embodied 
affects our experience of reading them. Maybe, maybe um, pull that out just a little bit more. What do you mean that, that how, how, how would that affect us? I mean, I can imagine because I have read books and I, mm-hmm. I do enjoy that, but, but what, what do you mean by that? How does, how does reading a book from a book affect you differently um, from reading it on a tablet or on a phone? I mean, one example would be think of an old family Bible. Um, it's large. It's probably in folio format, mm-hmm. um, leather bound. Uh, it has weight to it. It has the the notes, or we call the marginalia, that people have written in through the ages. What I called margins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and because of that, before you even open that book, it has gravitas. Okay. It creates a sense of reverence that you're approaching something weighty. And to read an electronic text doesn't create that same immediate firsthand impression. But, but it doesn't mean that the thing that is weighty is worth the weight that it's given, right? Certainly. <laughs> you know, there's plenty of books out there that are, have plenty of weight and, and you, know, you know, are not the, the King James Version of the Holy Bible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, or another experience that might work for people of our generation is the experience of opening a CD. Yeah. Uh, that when you buy a CD, you it comes in the, the cellophane wrapper and there's that moment of anticipation before you crack it open. And then you crack it and the, mo- the music is then opened up to you and you've got the lyrics and the text. And when we listen to something on Spotify, we don't get that same experience of discovery and unveiling that you I get with that. physical media. That's a, that's a perfect analogy. Cause I do, I, and I have albums that I like record albums that I enjoy and, and I have, you know, cause I, I mean, yeah, I grew up the same time and it definitely CDs were the thing and it was so wonderful to look at the art. But when you, then when you, I remember when I bought my first record, which was after my first CD mm-hmm. and you're looking at this lyric sheet and it's the size of your head and, yeah. and like, the the um the art is so vibrant and so real and it really does enhance the listening experience in a real way. And so I love the fact that when we approach a text, especially a text we encounter electronically, we need to be reminded of how the physical medium in which it was originally instantiated shaped the development of the text. Like when I teach Beowulf to my students, I say, we're reading this right now on a, on a printout, which I've handed it to you, or a projection on the screen. Mm-hmm. Imagine hearing this, encountering this text as it was originally portrayed. An oral narrative in a mead hall. Yeah. It's dark. It's smoky. There's uh, clatter, you know, clattering goblets around you. And that creates, and when you talk about the monster Grendel in the shadows, there are actual literal shadows in the corner of the room. So the environment... And the whole uh, experiential milieu around a text uh, creates part of its experience that can't always be replicated, even if we have the same literal words. Oh, absolutely. I, and I think along the same lines, I think the, the biggest mistake that almost every English teacher that I know does is they have their kids read Shakespeare before seeing a play. Yes. And because the experience is so much different. Um, even if you don't understand everything, like then going to the text afterwards, it makes so much more sense. And, and 
Um, and otherwise it is, it's, it's just boring. I like, why am I reading this? I don't under, I like, I don't understand this English. I don't understand what they're trying to say. The, the, um, rhymes don't quite work out right. <laughs> you know, it's just, I don't understand it. But once you've seen a play, you've seen the play and you've experienced it and you've started, you hear, you hear how it really is and an, a visual and aural experience. Um, you know, it takes a whole new texture on it. Yeah. And, this is not to, in any way to disparage electronic texts because when printed texts first came out, there were manuscript purists who said that print is a fad. Yeah. That it's print will never catch on. Print is destroying the manuscript. And there's this, you know, O tempora amores lament that comes out every time a new medium comes. Right. And new things are being made available uh, that only an electronic text can do, like hypertext poetry. Yeah. Uh, that's not feasible in a physical medium. So, it's not what I'm trying to say is not to have anxiety about the new, but to appreciate that texts have have are created things in the world. Yeah. And their createdness, their embodiedness shapes our reading experience for it. And that's one of the reasons it's so valuable to preserve physical media. Uh, one great example of that is there is a researcher at Ole Miss, his name escapes me, but I can find it for the show notes, who is doing work uh, using technology developed for satellites to look at the ridges and manuscripts to, to determine which animal it came from, which breed of sheep may have been <laughs> wow. used to make that particular uh piece of parchment and then from the breeds of sheep you can figure out where the manuscript came from insane and or through looking at the chemical composition of ink you can determine uh where a manuscript came from based on the vegetation of that area right uh it's not something i'm i'm knowledgeable about but what i can say is that's an example of why it's so vital we preserve physical texts because we have no idea what technologies for research will be developed in the future. And if we uh, dismiss the physical text saying, oh, we've already got an electronic version, you don't know what resources we, that we can't yet imagine could someday be brought to bear on that text. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about... Um rare books. How, how would you define a rare book? This kind of gets some definitions out of the way and, and what, um, you know, so we, I mean, I think everybody kind of has in their mind what it, you know, what a rare book looks like, but how would somebody in the business define a rare book? Well, we look at three components that make a book rare. It's scarcity, it's desirability by collectors and it's condition. And only when all three are together is a book considered rare, at least in the rare book trade. Okay. Um, there are many books that are scarce but not highly desired, that are highly desired but not scarce. And all these factors, when they come together, give a book its rarity. So it's how, how does how does the the um, uh, the quality of the book the itself matter? In other words, I mean, obviously you want as good a quality. Uh, example as you can but at the same time it's still rare it's still desirable it's still you know uh it's still scarce um so how much of a difference would the you know how well it's preserved um matter condition is one of the number one determinants of a book's value um the with with modern books 
the number one element of condition is the dust jacket. Has the dust jacket been preserved and in what condition is the dust jacket? But those three elements of rarity uh, can offset each other. Mm -hmm. So for example, if something is highly sought after and desired, uh, but is in poor condition, still can have the element of rarity. The Nag Hammadi library and the yeah. Dead Sea Scrolls are not in ideal condition. They're right. fragmented, but are highly desirable. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Um, and so, so I don't think we got to how, how you got interested in not just in books, but in rare books. How- sure. So I was fortunate to uh, grow up in the era of eBay. Yeah. And I, I think my first book I bought was a leather-bound edition of Marcus Aurelius. Funnily enough, that's a Wild. that's a god incidence right there. <laughs> right. Um, that coincidence, depending on our previous thinking back to our previous discussion, and I just realized that coincidence. That's, that's pretty wild. remarkable. Uh, and I love that idea of holding something in my hand that had that feeling of ancientness, and. As I now know, looking back on that particular edition, that it wasn't particularly rare. It was a modern copy. But I remember the the sort of frisson of excitement that came with it. Yeah. Uh, one of my other avenues into it actually came through music. I was very involved in uh, the punk rock scene in my town. Okay. And there was, in the 90s, uh, among punk fans, there was a type of literature produced called zines, which were handmade or roughly photocopied uh, fan fan magazines for punk. And what I learned from zines and zine collecting was about typography because you had these amateur typographers uh, working in their basement or with their using their works photocopier without permission, creating these incredible and now often really sought after artifacts of music history. And so collecting zines, uh, even though it's not within a, a classical vein, was one of my inroads into appreciating uh, the art of bookmaking. That's interesting. That's mm-hmm. really cool. Yeah, that's. Um, I remember those days too. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, getting those, checking out those zines, and and you know, finding the bands that you enjoyed, and they were very. You know, you can imagine like these are artists, and mm-hmm. they're they're doing the things that artists do. <laughs> yeah. 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 And then I, I had a, a chain of uh, fortunate uh, circumstances put before me. My father uh, got a job as a computer instructor for the Air Force in Germany and England. And so I got the experience to uh, travel those nations when I was young and visit Warwick Castle and get exposed to medieval culture. And I love to read particularly medieval texts. The Lord of the Rings is still my favorite book to this day. And that attraction. And then in college, I took a course on the Maya with a professor who could read the Mayan codices. Oh, wow. And I remember being in Mexico and being taken to a cave where some of the Spanish uh, colonists burned the Mayan codices and thinking what a tremendous loss that was yeah. that here's a vast civilization and what we have from it is four texts. I mean, the Mayan scholar Michael Coe said trying to reconstruct the Mayan civilization from the four codices is like trying to reconstruct all of Western history from a King James Bible and the Pilgrim's Progress. And so that made me realize just how vital physical books were to a culture. 
and how fragile our heritage is. Uh, and those experiences were very formative to me. Uh, and then I focused on medieval texts in my undergrad. And then from my grad school, I went to Durham University in the UK uh, to learn Old Norse. And I got, I'm still very interested in Scandinavian studies, but while there, I, my life went on a, a tangent. I was given a copy uh, to examine of an early modern printed book called Upnaratamachia Polyphily, which means the strife of love and the dream of he who loves many things. It's considered the most beautiful printed book of the Renaissance. And I was just captivated by this text, how beautiful the woodcuts were, how bizarre the narrative was, how all the erudition that was packed into this book. And it really gave me an interest in print culture, uh, which I think was latent since my interest in zines, but I hadn't really uh, focused on. So my research focus shifted from the Norse studies into uh, early modern print. Okay. Okay. And, and that, and that's the, the text that you used for your doctorate, right? It was. Yeah. I, this text is a, Love story and an encyclopedia in one. And I know that sounds, doesn't sound very romantic, but it's about the passion that Renaissance scholars called humanists. And humanists in this context means student of the humanities. It doesn't, that word doesn't have the secular connotations that it, it's developed today. Yeah. Uh, the humanists uh, had this love for the ancient world that they would saw themselves as recovering. And so the, the stories of the lover Polyphilo, which means he who loves many things, going toward his beloved Polia, which means many things. But along the way on his journey, he gets distracted. Uh, he comes across a garden and then narrates all the plants that he finds in it. Or he comes across a building and narrates every architectural oh, feature. Oh, how cool. But these di digressions take... Uh, their knowledge from classical texts. So all the building he's describing is a catalog of all the main features found in Vitruvius's De Architectura. Yeah. Or the garden is uh, full of plants found in uh, Pliny's Natural History. And so this book is a conspectus of all the knowledge that a Renaissance humanist was supposed to know, but knit together by love. And that's one thing I found so compelling about it. But usually readers approach the Nautomachia for the woodcuts because the woodcuts are just gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, they are really fine work. But the narrative has been kind of dismissed as unreadable. So I come, came across a book called, that I really recommend called The Book Nobody Read by Owen Gingrich. Okay. Where Owen Gingrich is an astronomer who did a world census of copies of Copernicus. Okay. Because... It was argued by author Kostler that no one actually read Copernicus, that they took this startling s statement, uh, the earth revolves around the sun, how wild is that, but didn't actually read what the book itself. <laughs> um, but in surveying surviving copies of Copernicus, he found that these books are extensively annotated. And readers often would read the most technical passages, not just highlighting, isn't that wild? Yeah. The earth goes around the sun. So I took Gingrich's model and applied it to the Upnaratamachia and found that readers really did engage with the narrative. They didn't just look at the beautiful woodcuts. 
uh, and some of the readers were are anonymous to this day, but some are are somewhat prominent. Uh, I mean, one was Ben Jonson, the playwright and contemporary of Shakespeare, and the other was Pope Alexander the Seventh. Wow. Wow. And, and that kind of takes to one of my thoughts is, is although definitely not the, the providence and, and the, the gravitas of, of what you're talking about. But um, one of the things I love about like even just going into a, a used bookstore and picking something out mm-hmm. is that, you know, that book is almost a, a living creature because it's, yes. it's it's been held by somebody. It's been it's been read by other people. And I think about like, who are the people? what what people did this book affect and you could read the margins and it's the text and and you know sometimes there'll be dates like given to you know so-and-so at this time and it's like wow i wonder why they decided to give it up you know yeah all these thoughts come into your head and, and it's just i love the idea of like the the book being kind of this living breathing thing and and uh um and applying it to such a monumental work like that must have been just a thrill yeah there's a uh, the term that's often used is object biography. Yeah. That objects have, have biographies in and of themselves. And one of the things that influenced me getting into this field was I saw a movie called The Red Violin, which follows the story of one violin from the era of Mozart through the uh, Chinese Communist Revolution. Yeah. And looks at all the owners of this vi- this one violin throughout history. And that's you could do the same thing with books, looking at when you become a collector you're not the you're not the end of the chain right you're a steward of this piece of culture for the next generation and so in that way collecting isn't just a hobby it's not just self-indulgent looked at one way it can be a service because you are being the guardian of this vital artifact ensuring that it's protected and and passed on to posterity and that's so important especially if you have it's so much safer for a culture to have their knowledge in, um, you know, 10,000 libraries instead of just one Alexandria. <laughs> Certainly. I mean, there, the, the questions often raised, um, are there things that shouldn't be in private hands that, that are of such cultural importance that they should be in a public institution? And I think there are maybe some objects like that. I wouldn't want a private collector to have the Declaration of Independence, though I think Ross Perot still got a Magna Carta. <laughs> Um, You're right. <laughs> but private collectors and public collect, public institutions go hand in hand. Public cl- institutions gather things together, but often public institutions don't have their finger on the pulse of what's to come. And it's the private collectors who are building up collections of things that are not yet appreciated, which will someday be housed in public institutions. But also public institutions can have disasters. They can burn yeah. down and having knowledge be distributed is a way of preserving heritage against disaster. Yeah. What, it, even if somebody just has an inkling, like, you know, it sounds kind of interesting. Like what, what would you say to the, to a person who goes, Hey, uh, book collecting, I never thought of it, but it might be interesting. Or, or um, maybe even I'd like to find out how to get into it. Like what would, what would you recommend that, that somebody does? Go for it. It's an immensely rewarding pursuit. And you get to you get to uh, create something greater than the sum of its parts when you make a collection. It's not just an assemblage of books. You've, you're creating a set of texts which tells its own story. So a good way to get started is think about what you love. Uh, think about what you would be passionate about preserving for the next generation 
and start off collecting that, not necessarily going for the high value items, but there are all these uh, awards out there for collecting that focus on niche collections. Uh, and if you collect something niche, you like are very specialized, you often can create something that when it comes time to pass on your legacy, you can donate to a public institution that that, inst- that public institution probably would not have collected yeah. that particular thing. Uh, in, in the 90s, institutions were not collecting punk scenes. They didn't see them as relevant. Now they're very sought after. Yeah. And it was the private collectors who recognized that need before but, others I think, did. I think what you just said right there is an important thought as far as like... Uh, when I think of a rare book or if I think about book collecting, I'm, I'm thinking about the used bookstore. I'm thinking about old, dusty, you know, mm-hmm. hundred plus year old books and things like that. You just mentioned punk, the punk scene, you know, the, the, if you're passionate about rock and roll, yeah. there's some sort of collecting that you can do that, that can fit that niche and, and, and will, will bring beauty to your, to you and your family, as well as, as you say, preserving society. Yep. And then the next goal is when you're, if particularly if you're interested in books, so you get the best book you can afford. Uh, it doesn't mean you need to splash out large sums, but it, you can aspire to get the most quality obtainable copy feasible. Uh, and that isn't always necessarily a first edition. Uh, okay. First editions are sought after, but there are books for which the first edition is actually smaller and not as rich as later editions. And there are, bo- there are books where the first edition is pretty much unobtainable, so any early edition is desirable. Um, you're not getting a first edition common sense, but you can get an early printing. Um, right. Those are accessible. Or uh, you know, any lawyer would love to have a copy of Blackstone's Law. Sure. Um, and early a first edition of Blackstone is is very difficult to obtain, but even a, a fifth or sixth or seventh edition Blackstone is still something that would have pride of place on any lawyer's desk. Gotcha. Um, what um, do, would you recommend going into a store doing research online for an amateur, somebody brand new? How do you recommend somebody going about to find stuff that is um, you know, that's going to be what they're looking for and not what they're not looking for. <laughs> One mark of quality to look for is the name ABAA after a bookseller's name. That's the Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America. Okay. Or if you're looking internationally, um, look for ILAB, the okay. International League of Antiquarian Booksellers. Those are booksellers who have passed a rigorous process to ensure quality and accuracy. Uh, in their descriptions. It doesn't mean you shouldn't buy from a non-ABA dealer. In fact, it takes a few years to become an ABA dealer. So just because someone doesn't have ABA after the name doesn't mean you shouldn't do business with them. They may just be getting started. But that designation is really a mark that you're working with a ethical and reputable bookseller. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. That's good. Um, what are some of your... like? What are, wh- what are the things that you're collecting? What are the things that you're, I mean, I assume it's going to be that medieval, um, you know, uh, early modern stuff. Yeah. Right now I'm we're collecting books on Ben Johnson oh, okay. uh, because cool. I don't have any Johnson uh, early editions. Unfortunately, those would be uh, beyond <laughs> a teacher's means right now, but I 
find Ben Johnson such a compelling figure because for so often he's been under Shakespeare's shadow. And he's seen as Shakespeare's contemporary who was a, a friend but didn't rise to the same level. And I think Johnson deserves to be examined in his own right. Um, so I'm just collecting a, a, not firsts, but very nice editions, uh, appealing editions rather than uh, original editions of Johnson's plays. Now, I use that word original, yeah. and that's uh, a vexed word in collecting. I, <laughs> it, as soon as it slipped my mouth, I, I, because it's often debatable what an original is. Is it the manuscript? Is it the first edition? Is it uh, an edition that was owned by the author? Right, right. And that's one thing I love about collecting is the more you get into it, the more nuances you find. Like the idea that a first edition isn't always necessarily the best thing right. to buy. That you, yeah. I would never thought that. But yeah, that once you, once you explain it, it makes sense. But it would be, um, yeah, the nuances are, are quite interesting. What... Um, resources can somebody go to are there books they could they could pick up are there like that you'd recommend are there um i mean could two good books to start off with is one is called abc for book collectors by john carter okay uh which is a really good glossary of terminology uh there is a vocabulary to be learned in book collecting but it's it's not too much of a challenge to get it down what for, uh terms for things like different kinds of editions. What's the difference between a state and edition and an impression of a book? Um, I'm glad to go into that. <laughs> or uh, learn to recognize different kinds of bindings. Okay. Or um, different sizes of books, like a folio, a quarto, or an octavo. Yeah. John Carter's ABC for Book Collectors is a great introduction to that. Uh, another good inroad to the to collecting is the book... Put my copy, pick up my copy here. Uh, Rare Finds by David and Natalie Bowman, okay. uh, which is written as a beginner's introduction to book collecting, which highlights um, not only terminology, but some of the best books to look for in various fields, um, whether religion, Americana, science, and so on. Um, it's, a, it's a very friendly introduction to the field. And another place to look um, for books is abebooks.com which is a marketplace of rare booksellers. Uh, and while you're on there, pay close attention to whether they're ABA or ILAB. That, that's a good mark to look for. Okay. Uh, those are equivalent? They are equivalent. The okay. ABA is a, is a section of the of, of the Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America is a section of the International League of Antiquarian Booksellers. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So in your history dealing with uh, some of these uh, rare and antique and, and wonderful books, what are some of the exciting pieces that you've been able to, um, you know, maybe not acquire, but, but be able to deal with, handle, um, you know, been, you know, worked with, with clients? Like, talk to me about some of your success stories. Um, well, I got my training working at Bowman Rare Books in Las Vegas, Um Though I'm speaking in a personal capacity right now. Uh, and Bowman, while I was there, had a Shakespeare's Fourth Folio, which is one of the uh, obtainable editions of an early Shakespeare folio. A first folio uh, occasionally comes on the market for millions, but a fourth folio sold for about 250000 Wow. We had a first edition of The Federalist. Wow. Which was gorgeous. Um, uh, a 
Kirtland edition of the Book of Mormon, uh, which is actually uh, a very sought after edition because, and it hard to obtain one because, of course, the uh, Latter Day Saints were in motion, right, <laughs> going west. So to have a Kirtland, Kirtland copy be available is, yeah. is something that is sought after. Uh, and uh, one of the most uh, chilling pieces I ever had was original manuscript by the Marquis de Sade. Oh. Um, and the fact that I was holding this, this terrible figure, I was holding something that was in his hand uh, wow. in my own, was uh, sent shivers down my spine. Wow. That is, that's creepy. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's crazy. Um, I know you mentioned to me cause I, cause I do have quite a few, um, LDS, uh, people who listen to the podcast and you were mentioned to me another fun book that, uh, um, that you came across. Yeah. We had a children's reader in the desert alphabet, uh, which was an alphabet that Brigham Young commissioned, uh, because so many, uh, immigrants were coming, uh, from Europe. Uh, to join the church in Utah who are having struggle learning English because of English's complicated orthography. <laughs> so he created a phonetic alphabet for English that looks nothing like the Latin alphabet, right? <laughs> uh, but is completely phonetic. And it was a f- five inch by six inch pink pamphlet called Deseret First Book with a picture of the Salt Lake Temple on it. Oh, wow. And it was just so neat because I, I love languages and ling- and linguistics and uh, made-up languages. I'm a Tolkien fan. Right. That to think <laughs> have to be. that this, this uh, alphabet, which was a great idea that never caught on, right. had, has been preserved. And children's books are actually quite collectible because uh, – they they tend to be scarcer than other texts because children yeah. read books, damage them, yeah. uh, love them to death, and so finding a a rare children's book is something very special. We had a first edition Cat in the Hat, oh, for, no first way. edition First State uh, for eight thousand five hundred. And what what does that mean, First State? Sure. So there are three terms that are used for the place of a book and its pr- history of being printed: edition, state, and impression. Okay. In addition are all the books that are printed from one setup of the printing press. Uh, and this is something that a notion that's getting a lot more complicated these days with print on demand. Right. Uh, and digital releases. How do you determine a modern first edition? Right, because somebody could go in and edit something and it's the, the next, you know, after the first one. <laughs> Certainly. And that's what, we, uh, that's what we term a state. Okay. A state is a variant within a print run. Okay. So, for example... Uh, uh, a, a letter falls out and is later corrected that, by the typographer. Yeah. That would be the first state of the first edition. Like a classic example of that is you can tell you have a first state, first edition of Huck Finn if on page 57 the phrase uh, with the saw is with the was. Oh. That typo was caught in a later state and fixed. So it's the same setup. So later later printings of Huck Finn come from the same setup of the printing press, the same edition, right. but a different state. And an impression is a given print run. Okay. So all the books that are printed in one go from a printing press form an impression. So the goal 
would be if you wanted to get the earliest possible edition of a book, you get the first state, the first impression, first state, first edition. First edition, right. Must be hard to find many times. <laughs> and it can be a big price differential even between states. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. And and it's just those small little things. That's that's really wild. Um, what we, we talked a little bit about this, but but I, I want to just kind of like um, help people get a feel for the the joy the. Um, real personal satisfaction that you gain and that you think other people will have by, by starting this hobby and, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, Mm -hmm. doing it. (laughs) Yeah. It's, we really want to try to break down the, the barriers to book collecting and open the gates. Uh, We're trying to broaden the definition of what a collector is that a collector can be anyone who loves texts. And, uh, Collectors can be someone who, like you, basically, it isn't have to, only a hobby for the wealthy. Yeah. So uh, I'd really love to encourage, if you're looking to come into this world of collecting, please do. Um, and you're a collector if you start accumulating books. It doesn't mean you have a, a rack of first of modern first editions, first states on your wall. Right. You're a collector and you belong in this community if you collect books. And... And let me say this, you know, I don't know how my listeners feel about, you know, the future and AI and, and mm-hmm. all, and, you know, all the things that are, you know, you, it's very easy to get, um, to feel catastrophic about the future. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think ha- having a, a library and specifically collecting old books, um, in a way gives a sense of hope. Yes. Because it's a way of saying, wait a sec. Um, we, um, we've been through this before, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we, and, and, and our ancestors have been through this and, and, um, have written about it and, and, and we're going to get, you know, as, as new as the technology is, is nothing new about human nature. Yes. Yeah. There's, I take a lot of consolation from looking at the way uh, some early humanists looked at print and they saw print as damaging the manuscript Yeah, and uh, creating such a proliferation of books that no one could possibly learn everything. And there, so, so there were fears in the 16th century of information overload. Uh, There's a book um, called Too Much to Know, which is about the way people organized information in the early modern period because they felt overwhelmed by the deluge of information accessible to them as well. And there's a a term that's that's being used for today called the digital dark ages, where where historians of the future are going to have a very difficult time studying our period because everything is on perishable media or on the cloud. How do you preserve that? Uh, And so it can be valuable creating something concrete because in the future, will we even have readers to be able to access modern uh, media? I've heard accounts of libraries buying five inch floppy disk readers because who knows what the historians of the future will need to access that's on a five inch floppy disk, right. that's on a flash drive, that's on an eight track. 
if we don't have the players to re- to bring back that information. Man, that's, that's exactly right. That's, yeah. Well, James, I want to thank you for taking your time. This has been a lot of fun. It's my pleasure. We're going to do it again, right? Definitely. All right. Awesome. You are listening to And If Love Remains. First of 23 installments requested by Dr. Levitt. Trying to be in compliance here because we're taking him and that whole organization down.